Hi there, I'm Father Patrick Wainwright. Thanks a lot for joining me today in this new episode of the podcast for College Catholics. And in today's episode, we'll address one of the most important themes of our faith, our Catholic faith, at least for me. Um, and that is the question of what is the nature of Jesus Christ? Many people think that Jesus did not exist at all. However, those are really very few. Most people recognize that there was someone called Jesus who lived many centuries ago in Palestine and who established some type of following. However, some people believe that he was human, a historical a human being of historical importance, a kind of wise man, teacher or philosophy, philosopher, but not truly God. However, the Catholic Church and many other Christian denominations say that he is true God and true man. So this is what we're going to be considering today. As I said in episode 22, two episodes ago, um, I shared with you how the Nicene Creed, that is one of the most ancient and universally accepted statements of the Catholic faith, uh, in it we say, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, only begotten Son of God, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, who for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. So to me, this statement is pretty clear in what we should believe. Jesus is truly God, and Jesus is truly a man. What this means is that in the mystery of the incarnation, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, without leaving aside his divine nature, took on, we could say, or assumed a complete and perfect human nature in such a way that we say that Jesus was truly and entirely divine and at the same time, truly and entirely human. These two natures were not mixed up or blended together, but remained distinct while united to each other in the person of the Word, or in the person of the Son of God. So as Catholics, we must firmly hold that Jesus Christ has two distinct, perfect, and complete natures, the human and the divine, while there is in him only one person, which is the divine person of the Word the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. This, of course, is a mystery, which we cannot explain. But it is not a contradiction nor an impossibility, because we say that he has two natures, but one person. However, all throughout history, there have been different opinions and doctrines, sometimes held by theologians, sometimes priests or bishops, that questioned or even denied the truth about the real nature of Jesus Christ. So, today we want to look at a summary, of course, it's just a summary, of these false teachings or uh, erroneous teachings. And remember that what I'm going to present here are false teachings, right? Heresies, we call them, that have cropped up throughout the history of the Church, which deny the true reality of Jesus Christ. 
So, in the very beginnings of Christian history, uh, even in the time of the apostles, we already see what was called Gnosticism or Gnostic Docetism. Gnosticism is risen, written with a G at the beginning, G-N-O-S, right? Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was a group or a sect that believed that in order to be saved, one had to acquire a certain knowledge or science that only an elite of very few people could obtain. Gnosticism is a word that comes from gnosis in Latin and Greek, which means knowledge. It's a Greek word that means knowledge. And this is why the, the name of the group was called Gnosticism. So what is important to remember in this particular case is that Gnostics, or Docetists, right, believed that matter, any material reality, was evil, created by an evil god. And therefore, they would not accept, they could not accept that God, the good God, would have truly taken our human flesh. They could not believe that the Son of God would have become man, would have assumed a human nature. They taught that the Word, the Son of God, did not assume a true human body, but only the appearance of a body. This is why that group or sect is also called Docetism, which is a word that comes from the Greek to appear or to seem. Right? So Jesus, they say, seemed to be truly physical and appeared to suffer on the cross. But according to these people, the Gnostics or Docetism, none of those things were truly physically happening. So we saw Christ dying on the cross, but he was not really dying on the cross, suffering on the cross, but he was not really suffering on the cross. It was an appearance or a vision that seemed to be happening. This is why already St. John, the evangelist, made it very clear, and he made a clear point of explaining that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, as we read in his Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14. John, chapter 1, 14. Moreover, in his second letter, second letter of John chapter 7, uh, sorry, verse 7, to John verse 7, he states that anyone who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So we see that the first opposition to the reality of the incarnation was from those who thought that it was not possible for God to take on a truly human body. However, this was not the only heresy in history, right? Later in history, around the 3rd century, another heresy arose that held that Jesus Christ was not truly God. Right? The main proponent of this teaching was a priest from Alexandria in Egypt called Arius. He taught that the second person of the Holy Trinity, that is the Son, was not truly equal to God. He taught that the Son, or the Word, was the very first creation of God the Father. A God, if you want, a God, not equal to God. So as a consequence, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he couldn't have redeemed the whole of humanity. Because as we uh, said in episode 22, you can check it out, only God could truly offer a sacrifice of infinite value to redeem us from sin. 
So it might, be, might sound a bit crazy to you, but there are some religions today that believe that Jesus Christ is not equal to God, but a sort of minor God, as Arius taught. So there are still people who hold and believe in Arianism today, even though they don't call it that way. The one who opposed Arius and his followers was St. Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria in Egypt, and he was bishop from 328 to 373, 4th century. It is primarily to him and his many efforts and sacrifices that we owe, to a great extent, the fact that we believe today that Jesus Christ is truly God. Right? So, St. Athanasius had to suffer a lot to defend the doctrine of the divinity of the second person of the Holy Trinity, or what is the same, to defend the divinity of Jesus Christ. Because of that, he was exiled from his uh, town, from his city in Alexandria, five times, even though he was the bishop. And Alexandria was one of the most uh, important, actually one of the three most important dioceses in the Christian world. He was exiled five times from his diocese. But thanks to the support of St. Athanasius, the Council of Nicaea in 325 affirmed that Jesus Christ was consubstantial with the Father, truly God and truly man. And also, the Council of Nicaea condemned the Arian teaching that thought that the Son of God, the Word, was a creation of the Father. So, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD and confirmed by the Council of Constantinople in 381 AD taught definitively that Jesus Christ was true God and true man. And this is why in the first chapter of his gospel, St. John the Evangelist clearly taught that the Word was God. And some verses below, he also taught that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. So Gnostic docetism and the other heresy of Arianism were the most serious heresies at the beginning of the church, referring to Jesus Christ. But they were not the only ones. Then came other theologians who introduced wrong opinions regarding how the incarnation of the Word took place. One of those is the heresy of Nestorianism, which was first presented by Nestorius, the patriarch of Constantinople from 428 to 431. That's the 5th century. He accepted that Jesus Christ was truly divine and truly human, but however, he erred in saying that there were two persons in Jesus Christ, one divine person, but also a human person. So Jesus would have two natures, but also two persons, and as a result, there wouldn't be one thing, but two entirely distinguishable entities abiding together in Jesus Christ. This might not, see, uh, this might not seem important to the average Joe, no offense to Joe, but its consequences can be devastating to our faith. Because this would bring about a great division within Jesus Christ. It means we would have an entirely human being working together and at the same time with the divine being. The divine being and the human being wouldn't really be united, but just 
next to each other if you want. So just to give you a visual metaphor, and this is just a metaphor, it's not uh, perfect, but it's a, like an explanation, uh, an image. Imagine you see a child walking with a balloon tied to his wrist. Wherever he goes, the balloon goes with him. But there are two things going everywhere together. They are two distinct things and separated, only going together everywhere. They are not really united as one. So according to Nestorianism, Jesus Christ wouldn't be one entity, but two. And if that is the case, then the actions and the sufferings of the man, Jesus Christ, wouldn't be the actions of the divine Son of God. Jesus would end up being a very holy man, just as St. Joseph or the Virgin Mary or any other saint. He would be holier than they, maybe, but still not God. So the death of Jesus Christ on the cross would not have been enough to redeem all humanity from sin and death, and therefore our sins wouldn't have been forgiven. Now, the seriousness of this uh, heresy is that, for the same reason, the Virgin Mary would have been the mother of the man, Jesus Christ, but not the mother of God. And this was a point that many Catholics uh, complained about. They really become concerned and demanded that the bishops declare that Mary, the Virgin Mary, is the God-bearer, the mother of God, properly so-called. So there were some actual, uh, actually some Christian denominations in the East. There are some Christian denominations in the East that still to this day embrace this Nestorian doctrine. And there are even some denominations in the United States that say today that they believe in Jesus, but it's a sort of Nestorian Jesus, a Jesus that is very close to God, but not God. So the Catholic Church, led by St. Cyril of Alexandria, in the Council of Ephesus, clarified how Jesus, uh, in Jesus we have two natures, one divine and one human, united in one person, the divine person of the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. And this is what we call the hypostatic union, or the union in the hypostasis, the union in the person of the Son. So hypostatic union is an important uh, term that I think college students, any Catholic college student, should know about and understand. The divine nature is perfect and complete. And the human nature is also perfect and complete. And there's only one person, a divine person, the person of the Son, which unites both natures in one being, who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, to clarify then, there is no human person in Jesus Christ. You should never speak about the human person of Jesus Christ, because there is no human person in Jesus Christ. There's a human nature, but not a human person. So, as a conclusion, whether an action is done through the humanity or, the, or through the divinity, it is always correctly attributed to the divine person of the Son, who is God. Therefore, we can properly say that God was born in Bethlehem, although the divinity existed before Bethlehem. That God was crucified on Calvary, 
that God died on the cross, that is, the human soul was separated from the human body, although the divinity continued to exist, always still united to the living soul and still united to the dead human body. And we can also say that God rose from the dead, although the one who rose from the dead is his humanity, let's say. The divinity always existed. So, finally, and this is very important for Catholics and all Protestant denominations today, we can properly and correctly say that the Virgin Mary is the mother of God, even though she did not give to Jesus the divine nature, of course, because the divine nature existed from before. And this is because the mother of God, we can call her mother of God, because Mary gives to Jesus Christ his humanity and carried the God-made man, Jesus Christ, in her womb. She was, as we call her in Greek, the Theotokos, that is, the God-bearer. In Latin, Dei Genetrix. Those who insist that Mary is the mother of Jesus, but not the mother of God, are basically embracing the Nestorian teaching. When St. Elizabeth received her cousin, the Virgin Mary, in her home, as we read in Luke chapter 1, verse 43, she said, How does this happen to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Here, the word Lord means Yahweh, or God. This is why, from very ancient times, the faithful prayed to the Virgin Mary as the mother of God, or God-bearer. Again, in Greek, Theotokos. In Latin, Dei Genetrix. There is a very ancient prayer called the Subtum Presidium, or We Fly to Thy Protection. This prayer, the Subtum Presidium, is the most ancient prayer to the Virgin Mary of which we have any records. And there's a fragment of an Egyptian papyrus with this prayer that is considered to be from the year 250 or 280 AD, which was found at the beginning of the last century. In that prayer, the Virgin Mary is called Holy Mother of God. And this was already written 200 years before the Council of Ephesus, which was in 431 AD. In that Council of Ephesus, it was defined against the Nestorian heresy that the Virgin Mary could indeed be properly called the Mother of God. So we see already from the year 250 or 280 AD that the Catholics in, the, uh, in Egypt were praying to the Virgin Mary using the title Holy Mother of God. So in the show notes, I will place the English and Latin versions of this prayer and a link also to the Gregorian chant version of this prayer. And I will end today's episode with a recording of our Midas Christi seminarians singing the Subtum Presidium. And this is the prayer which I encourage you to pray with me. We fly to thy protection, O Holy Mother of God. Despise not our petition in our necessities, but deliver us always from all dangers, O glorious and blessed Virgin.
So thank you very much for sharing your time with me today. As many of you are starting a new academic year, let us entrust ourselves to the powerful intercession of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God. Remember, please, to share this episode with your friends to help more college students to get to know and love Jesus Christ and His Most Holy Mother more deeply. If you would like to support this podcast, please do leave a review in Apple Podcasts so that others may be encouraged to listen as well. So we will see you in our next episode, and may God bless your day. So, Lord, bless you.